Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Because I still wanted to race. The season was still going on. I had several more races left. Two, I think two more races. So I went into the bottom of the courthouse and thinking I was going to be okay, but... When I come out, they had tipped off the news people and all the, the media was out there with cameras and microphones and it was like a setup. They set me up. Welcome back to the Andy Rowe Show. In 1986, Randy Lanier was crowned the Indy 500 Rookie of the Year, finishing 10th in the most watched sporting event on the planet. Simultaneously, he was running one of the biggest marijuana smuggling operations in American history. This is the story about how Lanier converted Colombian weed into racetrack speed. But before we get into the episode, Athletic Greens are supporting us again this week. And if you want to support the podcast and support your health, get involved by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. I've been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because sometimes I'm a bit useless when it comes to making sure I'm eating all the right foods every day and I want to better gut health. I've been taking it for a couple of months and it's amazing how after taking AG1, I've got more energy and much better mental clarity as well. I'll put the link in the synopsis to this episode, but to make things easy to get started, Athletic Greens are going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. The travel packs are a lifesaver, trust me. Just visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate nutritional insurance i hope you enjoy the episode randy lanier thank you very much for coming on the show no you're welcome glad to be here yeah well i mean hell of a story you've got it's uh it's an epic epic book an epic read i want to go through it and just get some stories from you talk about you know for people that haven't read the book yet and make sure they realize just how amazing the story is and how much of a journey you've been on because it's a long one it's an entertaining one, and uh... it, it's entertaining. But I had three decades uh, that wasn't so much entertaining. Uh, being in maximum security penitentiaries for twenty-seven years, so I don't know how entertaining that was. How did you get into selling weed? Because let's start there, because that's that's <laughs> the bit where you know it's the crux of the story almost. So growing up in South Florida, it was the culture in the sixties going to festivals, music festivals and pop festivals and smoking weed. I started smoking weed when I was 14 years old and started selling weed when I was 15 because it was an easy way for me to smoke for free. <laughs> How are you getting it? Just from the neighborhood people. I had a friend that just came back from Vietnam and he was an older guy, older than me. So he had access and through his connections, I got more connections and it's just a thing that kind of grew wasn't long after that you you brought your first race car. Talk me through the process of, of buying that Porsche. I picked up a 1957 Porsche. It was in bad shape. A friend of mine helped me restore the car and turn it into a race car, a proper race car. And I took it out to get my 
license. I got my license. And in my very first race I took it to, which was West Palm Beach Speedway, somehow I won my first race. Wow. And it was quite, quite exhilarating. Uh, I had qualified not so well, but ended up winning the race. Just got the bug, you know, with my parents and all my family there. And the exhilaration that that, that occurred was just phenomenal. So you got the bug for racing. How like there's, there's certain parallels you talk about in your book between racing a car and bringing in a load of weed. Well, I think the adrenaline that when you do something and you have to really put your attention and focus on it in order to do it proper and be good at it, the concentration that it takes, the attention that it takes, the energy that it takes, it's similar. When I was a young guy smuggling weed at 19, 20 years old, coming from the Bahamas, it was a thrill. Uh, I'd come in at nighttime when it was dark. I'd even come in in the daytime on a busy weekend when it was a lot of boats. The risk that you're taking and the exhilaration that causes you to feel is quite extraordinary. It's uh, exhilarating, you know, and then the final end of it, when it's done, you feel like you've accomplished something. And actually you put a team together, just like racing. When you're smuggling, you, you put a team together of people that you trust. You know, it takes a lot of logistics, a lot of planning and a lot of teamwork to get across the finish line. When you got into the, the car racing, you, you went and brought a, a motorhome off uh, with the Whittington brothers. They're quite an important piece of your story, aren't they? That's my buddies. Um, we became quite close. Three brothers, all of them race car drivers. One of them, Bill, we, I teamed up with him in 1984. And him and I ended up uh, winning the 1984 International Motor Sanctioning Association called IMSA. It's an international championship where the factories compete. We competed against the Ford factories, the Jaguar factory, the Porsche factory, and we're a private team. And so competing against those teams, we knew that we had to do a lot of research and development and a lot of testing. So by bringing in big loads of marijuana, we could afford all the testing just like the factories. We could afford the research and development into developing carbon fiber brakes. This is back in the 80s before they were even out. We could afford developing and doing research into cool suits so you can keep your temperature down so your brain don't get fried while you're in a race car. And we could do also testing with different tire compounds and stuff. So if I wasn't at the racetrack, I was at the race shop. Highly involved, a lot of time spent. And those guys you mentioned were my brothers in racing. You had to get to a point before you got into that championship of um, you know, doing some other races. And can you talk me through how you got your first start at, in the Daytona 24-hour race? 1982, I'm at Daytona as a fan. I've got a motorhome. i got my family there with me. I got my a group of friends who also brought their motorhomes. And it, it's like a big weekend for us to barbecue and have a good time with the family and watch some racing. I'm hanging out around the Ferrari garage. One of my friends is um, a guy that is like a gopher. He cleans up the shop and gets what they need to be taken to the pits and helps clean up the shop and stuff. And he tells me about one of the drivers is getting ill and she cannot compete. 
I asked the guy to go tell the, the manager or the owner of the team that you know someone that can drive race cars. So he does, and he introduces me to the owner of the the Ferrari team. I tell him that uh, at that time, I've captured the Southeastern United States e-production, a regional, national, regional champion of the e-production here on the East Coast of United States. But this was a big step up though. This wasn't- I did that in the 3.56 Porsche. So I kind of give him my resume and what I'm doing. And uh, he asked me if I had any money. I, I had $5,000 in my camper. He said, all right, well, I'm going to give you four laps. If you think you can do it, go get your gear. I had all my helmet and my driver's suit in my motorhome. So I went to my motorhome, got my got my helmet and suit and came back and showed up in the pits. And there the Ferrari was, a BB-512, waiting for me to take it out for four laps. That was my first Ferrari I've ever driven. So I go out and kind of get familiar with the shift pattern of the car. But my four laps were close enough to the main driver, Bob Wallace. It was within a second of his time. So I came back in and uh, the owner said I had a drive. That was my big break, my first drive into GTP racing, Grand Touring Prototype Racing. What people have got to understand is during this time, you're not just, you haven't just made your fortune smuggling weed and you've just gone car racing you're still you're doing both simultaneously you're still you're still smuggling drugs into the into america and it was around this time that you decided to increase the amount of weed that you're bringing into america and you went directly to meet the farmers didn't you at that time yes i decided to purchase a larger vessel so i bought a 68 foot trawler went to columbia with it met several different families and decided which people i wanted to work with and loaded up the vessel that year about six months later after the daytona race i got offered to drive in le mans france with the ferrari team that i had done at daytona right before that i had sent the boat to columbia i'd been to columbia went up in the mountains and procured a a load of marijuana of fifteen thousand pounds and uh ran that into the coast of, of florida Tell me about that first big load that you brought back and and how that operation unfolded. The first load I brought in was like, I call it the beach assault. I brought in a a 68-foot wooden vessel with 15,000 pounds of marijuana, and I used rubberized boats that you see like Navy SEALs use. I had everybody dressed in black, and all night long, we went back and forth. The boat was about a half mile from a house that I had leased right on the ocean, and we just unloaded, and I pulled bands up to the side of the house, and all my crew would bring in the boats from the, the big vessel on these little Zodiacs, and I'd have guys holding the Zodiacs so they wouldn't wash away, and they would run the beat weed up to the beach and sling it up into the into the van where I had workers helping load it up, and it's, each van took off, another van would come in, and that was my first load of, of the beach assaults. It's almost like a military operation. Yeah, it was. Um, we tried to time it so we could get it all in before sunrise. I almost had a problem because at sunrise the next morning, I still had 800 pounds sitting on the beach as the sun was coming up. I had to send extra people to hurry up and get it in before beach walkers come down the beach. I learned something from that, though, because I, I sent the boat back to Columbia and I went and got AstroTurf carpet, and I rolled it down the beach. So the guys, what was happening, the guys was getting tired from walking in the sand, carrying 50-pound bales of weed, 
because they sink in the sand. So I put astroturf carpet all the way from the ocean water to the sand dunes. Then I put like these four by eight plywood sheets of plywood. And I put a little fold up collapsible um, conveyor belt that was electric. I ran the cords to the house that we had. So they would just have to walk it. They had a pathway with a carpet. They walk it up to where I had the platform built, put it on a conveyor belt, and they take it, put it right in the van. So the second load was done in one half as fast. How much money would you have made from the, those two loads? Each time we over a mill. You, you personally, you'd take over a mill? Yeah. Right, okay. And as you said before, your racing career was taking off at this point. You were you went over to France to Le Mans, but you kept having quite bad luck with mechanical faults and issues around your, your car and things, didn't you? One thing about racing is when you're going from teams to teams, and some of the teams may be a little bit lower budgets, so I had a lot of DNFs. Racing is really expensive, so you try to save money and put it towards the cause wherever you can. And I was having a lot of DNF. So that led me into wanting to put together my own race team. Yeah. Talk me through that process. Blue Thunder, which was your race team, Blue Thunder burst onto the scene and you were competing against all the big manufacturers. And you're like, who are these private guys that have come from nowhere that are just winning an international competition? Yeah. In 1983, I, was racing in the Miami Grand Prix with another team. We qualified really good, and the car at practice broke a gearbox, and the team owner didn't have the parts to fix it. So I've got, like, the hotel suites rented. I've got catered at the track, a big tent. i got all my friends and family, and I'm sitting watching the race from the pits. So it was like a big letdown. That led me into making a thought of putting my own team together. And that year in 1984, we had just a golden year. I missed the first couple of races because I had a load coming in. That put us behind the curve right there with points in the race. But once we got the team up and running, everything was on point. We had hired a, a great crew chief, and he hired all the crew members, and we really gelled. And it's so important to be on point with everybody, and we just gelled and uh we took that year and won a lot of races and uh, won the championship. What did they say about your team? It was the only team on pit lane where even the engineers had Rolexes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for Christmas, I would give these Rolex, presidential Rolex watches as gifts. And so a lot of my crew members had these gifts. And sometimes I'd gift them with stuff after we do a load, just as a token of appreciation. And this is when people were, the media and things, started to ask questions about this guy, Randy Linear. Where's he, where's he getting his money from? Yeah, some of the, the media started kind of poking around, asking who's financing all this and what sponsors. And I had a little boat rental club, uh, jet ski rental place that were, was renting out jet skis, but it wasn't renting that many jet skis. <laughs> <laughs> How many jet skis was it renting? It wasn't written nowhere near that. <laughs> you got a tugboat. You got a tugboat and used uh, the uh, to bring in marijuana and used a barge. You used a barge being towed by the tugboat. Tell me about that because draw me a, a picture in my mind <laughs> on like how that worked. 
one of my buddies introduced me to somebody who was a tugboat and salvage operator. He told me he had a tugboat that he'd like to use to bring in some loads with me. I sent the boat down to Columbia. He told me it was a hundred plus foot boat, quite a large vessel. But when I saw it on the water, it was a 150 foot tugboat. I put 35,000 pounds on it and ran it up the Hudson River into Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I said, my God, we could have put a lot more in the tugboat than the 35,000. And he said, well, if you want to do that, I got barges. I'm just going to work out what that is in kilos. 35,000 pounds. So that translates to 16,000, almost 16,000 kilos. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. And you put that in the tugboat. Put that in the tugboat. Brought that in to Bridgeport, Connecticut. Kind of went okay. I mean, I got it all in and sold it. And I went and looked at his barges and thought, my God, we can do a lot with this. And we devised a way where we could hide the, the, the vessel was so big, we decided to hide it because of the large, when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of pounds of marijuana, it's huge. So we figured out a way we could weld false watertight compartments because the barge, when it has nothing in it, they pump water in the ballast to keep it floating properly. So what we did, these barges is six stories, seven stories high. Each side has ballasts of water. So we went halfway down and welded three quarter inch steel and used the bottom part as a, like a secret compartment. And we would cut it open and put our weed in it and weld it back up. So nobody would know it would clear customs. So I would have 160,000 pounds on board. 160,000 pounds. Let me do the maths on that. 160,000. That's 72,500 kilos. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Massive, massive. Hey, the, 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 the demand for weed here in the United States is probably larger than the UK. <laughs> 725,000 kilos. As you can see, it's already illegal. It's legal now here in the United States, in 38 states. So how much money did you make off the, the barge? First load of the barge, I brought in 110,000 pounds, my first barge load. Okay. I kept kept going up each year. Okay. So, so what, what would 110,000 pounds of we get you? About $11 million profit for myself. For you. That's after you've paid for everything else. Right. Shit. Jeez, that's a lot of money. And this is back in the 70s or 80s? That was 1983. Okay. Okay. So it's probably worth double that in yeah. today's money. Oh, my goodness. And then your second load was even bigger, right? Yes. Each load kept getting bigger and bigger. So it clears customs. You've got all that marijuana in that barge. Then what What do you do once it's once it's cleared customs? How do you how do you get it onto <laughs> what the What do you land? do? You... And then sell it. Like, how, what's the process? Take the barge and you pull it to where you're going to unload it. And you have people come and you unload it into tracks and trailers. It's You put it in. It's on trailers. You put it on the back of tracks and trailers and take it to a, a warehouse where you have people waiting to take it out of the tra- out of the tractor, out of the CTI, the containerized trailers. And you put it into over the road tracks and trailers like refrigerated traction trailers or just regular freight trailers. And you haul it to different stash houses in different states to process. It's a massive process. And then and then there'll be separate people that go to the stash houses, I'm assuming. Then, and then, take then it to the people street. would go to the stash houses for their customers 
and they would bring motorhomes and trucks and vans and pack it up and distribute it to their stash houses. Were you doing drugs yourself during this time when you were racing? Doing eighties, not 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 while I was racing, no. But when I was partying, yeah, I'd be in south of France snorting cocaine, partying all night. Sure. Yeah, you must have been you like literally a rock star, feeling like you're a rock star. Your mind starts getting in a certain type of lifestyle. I'd I'd take the Concorde over and land and have a private jet waiting for me. From there, I would go to all my different destinations, whether it was Zurich or Geneva. I'd always end up with the my last several days at Monte Carlo. I'd hang out there in Saint Tropez and just really enjoying life. Uh, how did you How did you go from that position into racing in the Indy car? I wanted to race at the Indianapolis 500 for a very long time. When I was a little kid, I I used to listen to it on the radio, and it always held a special place uh, in my heart that I thought they were the they were my heroes, these drivers at Indianapolis 500. So that kind of lingered with me the whole time through my journey and finally got to live it uh, in 1986 when I competed at the Indianapolis 500 and finished 10th and was rookie of the year. It must have been epic to finally race in the Indy 500. Oh, it, it was beyond epic. To race at Indianapolis was a dream come true, but I had wanted to take a little further. I wanted to win Indianapolis. I didn't want to just race there. Yeah, I, I wanted to win Indy 500, and I only got to drive there one year before my my racing career was short lived. It was probably one of the shortest lived racing careers there's been. <laughs> well, um, what what do you remember of that race of being in the Indy 500, the first time you actually got to race in it? The crowd, the first lap of the race, I'll never forget entering turn one with all the hot dog wrappers and. Uh, food wrappers blowing in the air and the stands were packed. There was 400 and some thousand people at this race. Every seat they were standing and it was like a tunnel because I hadn't seen this. The the stands wasn't packed like this during practice the whole month of May. Now it's like a whole different track almost, especially with all the 33 cars that we hadn't been on the track all month with 33 cars out there. It only been practice with several cars. You know, you try to find it when it's not really crowded to get good, clean laps. So now we've, it's a whole full feel. Just the turbulence, the different line that you'd have to take because of all the rubber getting put down. It was quite an experience. And I, there's great memories of, I remember the first lap and I remember the last lap. It was an amazing thing. And qualifying that month, we was there for the whole month. And qualifying, there would be 200,000 people for qualifying. It was the Indianapolis 500 at the time was the single largest sporting event in the world. Bigger than the Super Bowl even. Oh, yeah, by far. It was for years. uh, The Indianapolis 500 was the largest single day sporting event in the world. You're talking about the last lap. Because there was quite a bit of drama around the last lap, wasn't there? And you were in the mixer. During the... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The yellow flag, when there was a crash earlier before the uh, slap, I kind of, it kind of hit me a little bit about all oh, what was going on. Thank God my, my crew chief got on the radio and told me, hey, last lap are coming up. You just hang where you at and you got 10th place. Your mind started to wander because you knew the FBI were on to you at this point. Yeah, I had been notified that I was being investigated. My attorneys had been trying to negotiate with the district attorney. And that wasn't making no headway because they wanted my cooperation. And I wasn't in the frame of mind to cooperate and tell on anybody. So um, I knew they were following me. When a yellow came out, I, I got into my head a little bit about, these next few last laps might be the last time I get in a race car. I mean, a lot of things were starting to run through my head, which normally don't happen because I'm focused on the racing. And it's one of the few times that my mind drifted off while I was in a race car. You can't do that when you're running 200 miles an hour. You ended up finishing 10th in the Indy 500, which is massive. for like You were the leading rookie. It was your first go at it. You win Indy 500 Rookie of the Year. The, you crowned the next big thing in Indy car racing. You went to the ceremony and everything, didn't you? Yeah, we went through all the all the press and all the ceremony. It was soaking it all up. But meanwhile, I was still concerned that this is all coming to an end. I'd been trying to work something out with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, I'd, I even offered myself up to go to prison for 20 years. No cooperation, but they was hell-bent on me cooperating. I offered complete forfeiture, 20 years but they didn't accept it. While this stuff is going on, you got the FBI on you. You're trying, to, you're trying to perform on the racetrack. You also had another weed shipment going on, didn't you? Yeah. I um, All this was going on. I had a shipment coming in to New Orleans. I got tipped off that they were waiting for me. Someone had gotten arrested in New Orleans doing somebody else, selling somebody else's marijuana. But he also was a distributor for one of my distributors. And they came and warned me that the FBI is following me. That's how I knew that I was being followed. I had to have the vessel reroute, send it back through the Panama Canal and up the West Coast to Northern California. But the whole time, the FBI and DEA thought the weed was coming into New Orleans. So for about three months, they searched every barge and tugboat they could find. And they never found it. Never found it. That was the one that ended up getting contaminated and, you had, and they had to scuttle it out at sea, didn't they? Well, actually, I don't really know what happened to it. The boat kind of just disappeared. I went to the docks one morning and there had been something that happened with the vessel, a uh, leakage uh, had gotten into the vessel. I think it got scuttled. Or did it? I did it. I. This is what one of my partners told me. What led you to initially turning yourself in? I come home one night and I drive into my driveway. And as I pull into my driveway, I've got this wrought iron fence, 2,000 pounds it weighs or more. And I see a car with two people sleeping. And I look and I say, well, that's someone casing my house. 
uh, FBI agents. So I go in, my wife tells me FBI was there all day. I said, well, they're outside sleeping. I just drove right by them. I opened the other gate to leave to go get a hotel room because I didn't want to get arrested at the house because they're right outside my property. They don't even hear the other gate open. These are big wrought iron thousands of pound gates. So I go to the hotel and my attorney tells me I've been indicted on some case out of Miami from years ago from some shrimp boats that was smugglers. He told me I could, there was a bond. So if I turn myself in, we could get bond. And that's what I did. You snuck into the courthouse. I saw, yeah, I snuck into the courthouse thinking, because I still wanted to race. The season was still going on. I had several more races left. Two, I think two more races. So I went into the bottom of the courthouse and thinking I was going to be okay. But when I come out, they had tipped off the news people and all the, the media was out there with cameras and microphones. And it was like a setup. They set me up. Shit. How did you feel when that happened? I mean, you're one of the shining lights of IndyCar racing. Everyone thinks you're this next big thing, and then all of a sudden, the reality hits. <laughs> well, very disappointing. Uh, Jeez, that's an understatement. Uh, yeah. the uh, You know, a lot was going on. My wife was pregnant with twins through all the stress we lost one of the twins so my son was born seven days after he was born i get indicted on a case the barges that carried the life sentence so my son was born without his brother i become a fugitive you watched the fbi agents raid your house live on tv didn't you i did yes yes yeah, it was surreal. I was staying at a at an apartment place that had a like a deli and stuff. And I go downstairs to get some breakfast. And on the TV screen is a news flash. And it shows cameras at the front of my house and gate. And like a squad of FBI is at my house. And underneath the little thing is ticker tape. 1986 Rookie of the Year, Randy Lanier. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's my house. They're raiding my house. So I got my food and I leave and I put a bag together and I flee. I go to New York and from there, I, I have passports under different names. I fly over to Geneva. That's where I remained for a, a while, taking care of some business. Did you have bank accounts in, in Switzerland? Didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> taking care of some, some uh, bank accounts and stuff. But the FBI doesn't stop. They continued on the path of finding funds. And it took them about seven years until they found everything. They, uh, they're pretty thorough with their job. How'd you get caught from there? After about nine months, I, I have a house down in an island called Antigua with a vessel. I have a boat down there. Of course you do. I'm going to take the boat to the south of France. First, I'm taking it to Venezuela. And I have a French crew meeting my crew in Venezuela. And from Venezuela, the boat's going to south of France. And from south of France, I have another crew that's going to pick the boat up and take it to Costa del Sol, south of Spain. I go to Antigua, and that was supposed to be just one day. I was going to tell the crew to take the boat to Venezuela, but my one day, stay, I stayed for five days, anchoring up on different islands and just fishing and, and having a good time. My last day, the FBI, they had two members of the FBI, their job was to fly in little planes in the Caribbean looking for my vessel five days a week. And on this day, I was on the boat when they found my vessel anchored up to an island called Barbuda. Did you see the plane fly over? 
Yeah, I saw the plane fly over and land on like a little grassy runway. My crew thought they were just tourists, but something in my gut didn't like it. And we pulled anchor and went back to the Falmouth Harbor where I was keeping my vessel. Once I got inside the bay, they blockaded the, the inlet with their big Navy vessel, about a 90-foot PT boat. And I couldn't get out. I'm, my vessel stuck inside the bay. And I go, hell no. I'm up in the flybridge looking around. I see this vessel, this great 90-foot PT boat. And I, I said, turn the boat around and head back out to the ocean. Well, as soon as we turned around and started hitting out the inlet, the PT boat blocked the inlet and wasn't letting us out. So I knew they was there for me. Then I launched my little, little skiff that I had on a winch and on the bow of my boat. And got in that and drove to a other part of the island and tied up on a dock and ran down a dirt road. And they was there with jeeps that they came and got me. Shit. And then you get given life in prison. Like you're not you're not coming out, right? Life in prison, natural death. And to me, that's still cruel and unusual punishment for a plant. Um, it's just a plant. It was the war on drugs in those days, though, wasn't it? It was a war on drugs. That's what they call it, Andy. But look, mm. it's a war on our own citizens. That's what it is. And the, the irony is that a lot of the states, and it's no longer legal to have marijuana, is it? 38, 38 states, there's some form of legal marijuana, whether it's medical or adult use. I tell you what's bizarre. Last March, the state of New Jersey has awarded me a social equity cultivation license. They're giving me a license to sell marijuana and to make tens of millions of dollars again legally. At least you know how to do it. You won't need a you won't need a barge, <laughs> or you might need it. You might need a barge, but you won't have to hide it. <laughs> so you're gonna give the so, give the Colombians a call, Randy. So now I'm involved in bringing on a team of cultivators. We're gonna grow the premium best weed that we can grow in the state of New Jersey. People will be asking. Because they're listening to this and thinking you got life in prison, and then and now you're actually speaking to me. Obviously, you're not in prison. I I got it like the perfect storm, Andy. President Obama was he sent a directive down to the Justice Department to look at long, lengthy, nonviolent prisoners that are doing long prison sentences for nonviolent crimes. I fit right into that category. At the same time that was going on. I get a, a envelope one day from a nonprofit organization to support cannabis prisoners. And there was of these pictures of these women in front of the White House marching, asking President Obama to release me. They had a picture of my photo on a stick in front of the White House doing a vigil. Did you know these people? Then, no, I don't know them. They're, they're advocacy people. They're advocating awesome. for cannabis they sent me pictures of them in california in different events advocating for my release and they're in front of the white house with my picture on signs and news media is out there i'm going look at this so i started communicating with these people they're advocates and they're trying to get me released because i'm a first-time non-violent marijuana offender and so now i've got them in my corner i got obama asking the Justice Department to look at long-term, lengthy, non-violent cannabis prisoners. When you realized that the world was sort of caving in around you before you went to prison, and you had all that cash, because you had a lot of cash. Had a lot of cash. What did you do with it? Did you hide it anywhere? I had, I hid it everywhere. It all got found. Except for, I got to tell you, there, there was some money 
that I put in PVC pipes in the ground. I didn't do it. I had my family do it. I put $3 million in PVC pipes and hid it in Virginia, along with five-gallon buckets of uh, cougar grams, maple leaves, gold coins, one-ounce gold coins, and kilo bars of gold. That's the only thing that I, I, I they never sent me any information that they found that. That mm. I don't know that they found that. They did send me photos. The FBI sent me photos of the three million they found in the ground in Virginia, in the PBC pipes. But right near that money was buckets of gold coins. I never got back any discovery that these gold coins were found, which was I found odd. Do you think they're still there, or do you think the cops took them? I think I think it got found. Yeah, I, and it just never got claimed. Dodgy. Dodgy. Sorry about the interruption, but coming up next week, we've got Matt Lewis. And Matt was an observer on a fishing boat when it sunk in the freezing waters of the South Atlantic. Trevor, who is this lovely guy with a big beard who I had been working with on the deck that morning, and we'd been joking about him giving me a haircut and stuff. And then he'd, I looked at him, and he was floating there in his life jacket. Sort of the collar was cupped up around his beard, and he was just floating on his back. He looked so peaceful. And I kind of knew he was dead. Didn't quite compute, but I, I kind of knew that he was. I think that was probably the one that struck me. You know, I, I described like moving across the raft and feeling limbs. You know, I knew that there was limbs underneath me. I knew that there, it was my crewmates in my raft with me, but the limbs that were under me, I didn't know whose they were. And I didn't know that it was people I was having to kneel on to get across the raft to help to close the door, that people had died and were in our raft. And ultimately we were you know, kneeling on them after they died to survive. That's coming up next week. Now back to Randy Lanier. Have you ever gone back and found some of the, any of the cash that you buried or was it all? No, I, no, I haven't. The property got seized along with the money when they seized it. So I haven't been back. And so since, since you got out of prison, you've been able to restart your life again? Since I've been out of prison, it's just amazing how wonderful life is. You know, we, as I told you, we create that destiny. And I have really been blessed. I told you earlier, my wife was pregnant with twins. We lost one of the twins. I get out of prison. My son, my wife, my daughter pick me up. And within under a year, my son's girlfriend's pregnant and she has twins. So now I'm a grandfather of twin six-year-old boys. Oh, do you feel like you were, you know, your, your life is... You must appreciate every little thing now because, you know, 27 years in prison and I can't imagine how restrictive that would have been for you. But now you must just have ultimate gratitude for every little thing that you, that comes your way. I am so grateful. Each morning I wake up before I get out of bed, I, I kind of tell myself what, what intentions I want to live my life today by. I only said about three, three intentions. I don't do a lot. I want to be a kind person. I'm going to be a person that tries to be of service to others. And I am so grateful every day. I am so blessed. And I tell you, when we live with gratitude, it brings about a lot of abundance because I think you hook into the energy in your heart. It just brings about the right opportunities, the right people in your life. And so, yeah, very, very grateful. Randy, you started working on that when you were in prison, though, didn't you? Like, you had to. You had to be grateful for things in prison. My last 10 years in prison, I started really doing a lot of yoga, a lot of meditation. 
I became a suicide volunteer. My last nine years, I was a suicide volunteer, meaning I sat with men for four hours a day that had tried to take their lives. A lot of times they didn't want to talk. A lot of times they did. And I came to understanding that one of the greatest gifts that we have that we can give to somebody is being a good listener. It really is. Amazing things that these people go through to get so bent up that they want to end it all. A lot of it has to do with stuff that's from younger childhood stuff, horror stories of trauma that people hadn't gotten over. People identify themselves as something that they're not because you're not your past. You're not your emotions. You're not your thoughts. Thoughts come and go. You're not your thoughts at all. Too often, people can become their thoughts or their emotions. That's why you see domestic violence. That's why you see road rage. That's why you see violent people react because they're on autopilot. And we don't have to be on autopilot. We can be a responsive mind, not a reactive mind. And it's all about being present and really telling yourself that you want to be the best version of you. And how can I be of service to others the best way I can? So that's why I'm vice president of a nonprofit that helps and supports cannabis prisoners. It's a familiar theme on this podcast. It's it's interesting to, you know, when you, when you speak to people that have lived and people that have gone through things and come out the other side, one of the things is gratitude and the other thing is doing things for other people. And those, those two things are such a familiar theme in this podcast and it's so interesting to hear it crop up from people like yourself, not through any question that I've given you, but through what you've been through and where you are now. And it always comes out with people that have been through something and that have made a success of their situation. Yeah. What I see is people that go through struggles and hardships, we all have a lot of things in common. And resiliency is one of them. Adaptation is another one. Having resiliency means that you know what, we can get through this, but how can we turn a tragic or a hardship or a struggle into something that is beautiful and something that is helpful to others? That's resiliency, is when you take something that is of a magnitude that is detrimental or struggle or hardship, and you turn it into something helpful and beautiful. And now you're on a path to be of service to others. And then the more you give, the more you get back. It's easier said than done, though, Randy. I mean, I want to, but I want to talk about your situation because you've done this, so you can say it. When you're in a cell and you've got the rest of your life in a prison, how on earth are you changing, changing your perception of your situation? Because your situation isn't changing. I, it, okay, so I, out of 27 years, Andy... I spent seven years in solitary confinement. What? Out of 27 years, I spent seven years in solitary confinement. Holy two shit. Years, two years at one time was my longest stint in solitary confinement. So how do, you, how do you change that? Real easy. You can be the best version of you in a seven by 10 foot cage. You can practice chess in your mind. You can do your workouts. You can study, you can read, and you come to an understanding that if they never open that door, I'm okay. I make chess pieces out of toilet paper. I don't need a chessboard to play chess. 
I can just play chess from calling out the numbers. So it takes practice. Can you remember, like, how vividly can you remember that day that you got released? Oh, the day I got released, I had my, my family was out there waiting on me. You got walked out by the other inmates, didn't you? Because it can be quite dodgy when people know someone's getting released. Yeah, I kind of wanted to keep it hush a little bit. I didn't want the whole compound know. I knew 30 days before I was getting released that I was getting released. Very few selected friends I told about it. Because in prison, you can have a lot of resentment. You got a lot of lifers that aren't walking through life on the same level that you are, maybe. And maybe they're struggling with resentment they have towards the system. So, but the day I got released, the supervisor of psychology come to get me and walk me out to R&D, receiving a discharge. That's where I got to go to. And to go through there, you had to go through a lot of metal detectors. It's a controlled, I was in maximum security, so it's a lot of control stops with uh, metal detectors and so forth to get to where I had to go. And I started out at my unit with the head of psychology and one other inmate. I walk out the unit and there was a couple of inmates waiting for me. They wanted to say hi and give me a hug and stuff and goodbye. But as we continued, the, 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 the group of people kept growing and growing. And by the time I got to the last metal detector, there was a, like a whole, group of, a whole group of men all wanted to just wish me the best. It was a crowd. I mean, a big crowd all around me walking. And that don't usually happen without the cops doing something about it. But they let us all walk up to uh, right near the last metal detector until where they couldn't go no further. It was an amazing thing because I had a lot of people that were emotional, was happy. It was uh, it was a beautiful thing. Do you miss any part of being in prison? No, I miss no part of being in prison. I'm blessed to be here right now. I have. It took me two years to file all the paperwork. And they finally approved me to come in as a speaker. So I'll be going back in as a motivational speaker to a reentry program where people are coming out. I'll be speaking to them real soon as they start letting people back in uh, from COVID. Randy, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. It's been it's been amazing. Uh, it's been more than I thought it would be as well. Like not only have you told me the, the, your story. As I, as I expected you would, you know, you've been very insightful as well, which has been amazing to hear. Where can people find out more about your book and about your about how your charities and things like that? Thank you. So the book, you can go to Amazon.com and buy the book at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. It's called Survival of the Fastest. Check out what I do for the nonprofit for the cannabis prisoners. It's called freedomgrow.org, freedomgrow.org. We're all volunteer nonprofit organization that helps support cannabis prisoners and their families. Randy, thanks again, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you, Andy. And thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again next week. Make sure you hit the subscribe button.